Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Uncommon Ground with Van Jones ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. Is this America, the land of the free and the home of the brave? Wake up, America, wake up! Political division in the country undeniably deep right now. The big question on a lot of people's minds, can Americans come together and heal? I'm Van Jones, and this is Uncommon Ground. Welcome back to Uncommon Ground. This is a show where we explore what it takes to make meaningful change in such a divided country. I'm Van Jones. Now look, I can still remember all the way back to summer of 2020. Uh, Not that long ago. Seems like a long time ago. But those months after we all witnessed the public execution of George Floyd, a movement started like no other. Suddenly, let's not forget, millions of people across the country were talking about race in a way that I've never seen. And that wasn't just black folks or brown folks. It included an awful lot of white folks who were talking about things that have been taboo, things like systemic racism, police brutality, white supremacy. And all of us were learning and growing together. I felt like we were on the path to building a better and more inclusive America. But there was also a lot of pushback. And a lot of people started saying, hey, I'm not racist. America's not racist. This is not something we need to be talking about. And since that summer, the pushback has gotten even more fierce with some folks even disrupting school board meetings, saying we're talking about race too much. But look, I understand that the concern and the discomfort in some ways, but I think that more dialogue, not less, deeper dialogue, smarter dialogue about this topic is not only warranted, I think it's necessary because America is only getting more diverse. America's grandkids do not look like America's grandparents. That's only going to continue. And if we want to be able to thrive as a country, We've got to be able to learn how to partner across these lines of differences and have these tough conversations, including talking about stuff like how white people can inadvertently contribute to systemic racism. And yet while we're doing that, we can't afford to alienate people. And it just seems like an almost impossible balance to strike. Fortunately, there are some people out there who are trying every day to get this done and do it the right way, including Robin D'Angelo, who I'm talking to today. Now, you may not remember her name, but you remember her book. The book was called White Fragility, and it was practically required reading in the summer of 2020. And now she's got a new book out called Nice Racism, How Progressive White People Perpetuate Racial Harm. I want to talk to Robin because she's got a really sharp perspective, first, on exactly what systemic racism even is. Second, how to talk to people about it, especially white people. Robin, in this conversation we have, she opens up about her own experiences with sexism and with classism and how that actually helped her as a white person understand how she had benefited from systemic racism. Uh, She also talks about how anti-racism work takes some time. It's not going to be, you know, just one summer or one conversation. It takes a while to be able to shift these perspectives. So we got to keep moving. And finally, Robin told me that talking about systemic racism for her never makes her feel guilty as a white person. I think a lot of people are concerned about white guilt and people being made to feel guilty. She says she never feels guilty about it. And I think that's a really key insight to keep in mind throughout this interview that we have. 
it's possible to talk about systemic racism, understand it, and do so in a way where white people don't have to feel unnecessarily guilty and black people don't have to feel victimized. And I think that Robin and I managed to do that in this conversation. So you're going to hear from Robin right after this. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes. But let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Look, I am honored to have you as a part of the Uncommon Ground community. Before we even talk about your book, your scholarship, your personal experience with all this stuff, what in your background, what in your upbringing put you in a position where you said, I will volunteer <laughs> to, try, <laughs> to try to close this gap? Well, there's kind of two parts to, to an answer to that question. And first is really as a white person, nothing in my trajectory would have me doing this. And it wasn't even on my radar. I wouldn't have even been able to tell you what it meant to be a white person. It'd be the last thing I would call up to. But there, there are a couple of things in my background that I think lead me to this. And one is that I, I grew up in poverty periods of homelessness, moving all the time, uh, periods mm. where I had a sister who couldn't go to school one day because she didn't have shoes. I had a very acute sense of shame. Uh, mm -hmm. I also, from an early age, understood the world was not a fair place for girls. Uh, I can remember signing, uh, showing up to sign up for band right? When I was maybe seven and when I was asked, what do you want to play? I said, the drums. And the whole room burst out laughing. And that's when I realized I was the only girl in the whole room. And, you know, the band teachers kind of like, girls don't play drums. And I remember running from that room. In, mm -hmm. And again, like, how did I not know that? Like, I feel so mortified personally. And I, I'm saying this because 
it wasn't until I was in my 30s that I ever really thought about, and who else isn't the world a, a fair place for? And how might you be benefiting from somebody else's oppression? And looking back, I'm also really clear that I always knew I was white. I always knew it was better to be white. And being white in many ways helped me navigate poverty. You know, bring me all those white people who want to say they can't relate to privilege because they grew up poor. And, I, and I'll just say, look me in the eyes and tell mm-hmm. me to be poor and white and poor and black is the same experience. How is it better to be a white poor person than a black poor person? Yeah. And I, and I don't mean we're inherently better, but it is better in the world. Easier. <laughs> if, if, not, if not better, easier. Well, let's start with another piece of my background. It it is powerful to look up and see images of God as white Hmm. and images of Jesus and Mary. Who These were precious images in my childhood. There's a lot of iconography in Catholicism. And I didn't look up and think consciously, oh, God is white. But it's the power of not having to, right? It's that relentlessness of everything that is the best, the ultimate, it is white. Your teachers, your heroes, your heroines. I don't know if I've ever admitted this publicly, but my favorite movie for most of my early life was Gone with the Wind. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's so racist, right? So you're just absorbing, absorbing, absorbing. And Mm -hmm. any white person who says, I never in my life heard a racist comment or joke, (laughs) they're lying. Right, right. Right. There is another piece to my childhood, and that is that my mother, part of our poverty, she was a single mom, and she had leukemia. And as she got sicker and sicker, you know, she really couldn't hold a job, etc. And we were told never to tell anyone. We were told she was getting better up to the day she died, and then once she died, we weren't to talk about it. And and so... (laughs) It didn't have to be as traumatic as it was if we could have talked about it. Who told you not to talk about it? Um, Well, my grandmother, my mother. It's hard for a lot of people to understand today, but there was a time when cancer was a shameful thing. And so there, there was this elephant in the room. And... By God, there's this other elephant in the room and it's really, really big. And I'm, I just, I'm going to talk about it. I think mm-hmm. that drives me, that, that recognition that there's a connection between suffering and silence. And uh, it wasn't broken for me, but I'm going to break it somewhere else. So you, you have this background that gives you some touch points for empathy. And also, you know what it's like to have something people aren't supposed to be talking about that's so overwhelming, so in everybody's face, you know, this cancer diagnosis for your mom. And yet somehow you're supposed to just pretend like it's not there. So all those things kind of set you up. But at some point, you said in your 30s, you decide to turn toward probably the toughest <laughs> issue. What was it in your 30s that made you decide to lean in as opposed to, to turn away? Those of us who have a, a way in have to use it as a way in and not a way out. So I want to be really Ooh. clear that's, that my experience of sexism and classism is not the same. It's not just as bad. It's just a way in to help me try to grapple with then what might it be like and how might I be benefiting in a way that I can't see as clearly as I can see how others benefit in relation to me. And unfortunately, a lot of white people who have touch points use them to exempt themselves. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, and, that, and, that, and that's incredibly frustrating when you're in any situation, when you're, you're trying to be heard and somebody goes, oh, I understand 100% what you're saying because... 
I, now you talk about me for a second and you're just like, uh, geez, and it just, it just short, short circuits the communication, but go ahead. I think you were asking what pushed me to speak about it. Well, first of all, I, I took a job I wasn't qualified for, but thought I was because, of course, I am a well-meaning white progressive. And that was as a diversity trainer. So I was working side by side with black people and other people of color who were challenging me deeply. And part of being white is I had never in my life been directly challenged by people of color and not in any sustained way. I mean, that's part of being white. <laughs> you can easily move through life without that. And just imagining that I could be responsible for anything close to the kind of experiences I had growing up, that just that's not acceptable to me. And so I also recognized that I could be heard a little more openly. So... I was motivated to use that. Uh, let's get a little bit into, everybody has heard of uh, white fragility. In some ways, it's sort of like a like an author's dream to write something on your laptop and send it in and suddenly <laughs> for it to be, you know, a, a decade defining <laughs> phrase and book. And you didn't rest on your laurels. You, you have a new one called Nice Racism. But for people who haven't read the book yet, just what is the basic argument? What is nice racism? I think most progressives especially feel offended or exasperated by the idea that they're being lumped in with the Klan and the Nazis and everybody else when, you know, they're pretty confident that they don't have a bunch of hatred for people. And you have this, this phrase, nice racism, that tries to address some of their blind spots. But what is nice racism? If you are a well-intentioned white progressive, uh, then I'm going to assume you will grant systemic racism, that racism is systemic. And that means we're all in it. It's built into the foundation of our society, of our institutions, of our language, of our norms, our practices. And we're all shaped by it. When you say systemic racism, tell me what you mean by that. Okay, so, so we have to start with there is no human objectivity. Human beings are not objective. We, we see the world through a cultural lens, right? Mm -hmm. How we were conditioned to make meaning of what we see, right? That right. That's cultural. That's our society. So for instance, if I, if I were born in China with my same biology and everything else, I would probably see the world very differently just because I would have been raised in that society. I would have seen things through the lens of Chinese society, Chinese culture. There's just, you, you wind up seeing the world through a particular lens without even knowing it. Yeah. Let's go to, let's Go to Japan and say, in Japan, which is more of a collectivist culture, it wouldn't be so important for you to be seen as an individual, right? In fact, you wouldn't want to be seen as an individual separate from the group. In the U.S., because we elevate the individual, then everyone wants to be seen as an individual. That's the irony of it, right? It's like you want to be an individual because your culture taught you that that is the, the good thing, the correct thing. And so... Racial bias is infused in the lens, right? It's in, it's in our language. I mean, we start with the foundation of the country, which there are two really basic things that cannot be denied. And that is 250 years of enslavement and the uh, genocide of indigenous people and the theft of their land. That's what our country was built on. That's how our wealth was generated. And white privilege was literally a matter of law, whether you could be a citizenship, whether you could vote. And it's a system of resource distribution, if you will, of defining who is human and who is not that adapts over time. So 
<laughs> we're not taught our history, so we don't know about Reconstruction. But we can go all the way into Jim Crow, right? So uh, in my lifetime, it was legal to murder Black people. We, we might question if it isn't still legal, um, but there were literally law in the books that says Black people can't testify against white people. This is in my lifetime. And then we had redlining. We had the GI Bill that was not Black people didn't have access to. We had, you know, not access to vote. And I'm going to focus my remarks. I want to be clear that all people of color experience racism in both shared ways and specific ways. But for purposes of you and my positions, I'm going to focus on black people. By every measure, black people are at the bottom and white people are at the top. And as Ibram Kendi says, there's really only two overall ways to explain that. White people are superior. <laughs> and that's why we're on the top. Or a systemic racism. Uh, and then you add segregation. Most white people live segregated lives. And, and I, I think the most powerful message of white supremacy, it's that I could live, love, work, play, die in racial segregation with no sense whatsoever that anything of value has been lost. To me, that's the deepest message of all. The absence of any sense that a segregated life... <laughs> that there's some value missing. In fact, white people, if we're being honest, measure the value of our spaces by the absence of black people. And I have to say, there are laws in 28 states right now <laughs> and more being pushed that would guarantee that we stay uneducated, which means that we'll protect this system. So if you are interested in learning about anti-racism, you just took us to kindergarten. This isn't even PhD level stuff. It's just the basic stuff. And let's assume that my community members can find that now. They know the terms to search for. And you can, as they say, do your own research and you can, you can learn. But you, because you've been having this conversation for so long with so many people, you've been able to identify this phenomenon that you're calling nice racism. And what is the particular new revelation that you're bringing forward that, that would have you write a whole new book now, having already shocked the world with one book <laughs> called Nice Racism. Well, let me be clear, a revelation for many white people. I, I don't think it's a revelation for, for black people. <laughs> but, but if we're in a, a system of racism, then we can think about neo-Nazis, white nationalism as explicit, as the extreme end of that continuum. But there's another end, and that's the end that I'm on, if you will. So I think about nice racism as the kind folks like me have. I always ask people in my workshops to change the question from if we've been shaped by systemic racism to how have we been. My forms of racism don't look like white nationalists. But they do look like something. And it's on me to try to identify what that is and challenge it. So there's a theme I hear over and over, and you can, you know, tell me if that resonates for you, uh, from Black people who work in primarily overwhelmingly white spaces. And I think you do. And that's exhaustion. Exhaustion <laughs> from the, the more subtle forms, the, the forms you can't really get your hands on. Like I'm smiling at you, but you're being undermined at, at every step. Um, and it, it can be it's more insidious. It, it can be debilitating. I'll, I'll give you an example. In the early 2000s, I started working to get urban youth 
out of jail and into jobs, especially jobs in the solar industry. You know, we call it green jobs, not jails in Oakland. It was a, a big push as the solar industry was growing. And you know, we had big dreams as a bunch of young activists. Said, hey, here's a whole new part of the economy that's going to grow. And this isn't from the 1950s or whatever. There's no Ku Klux Klan policing the grounds around organic farms <laughs> to keep us. So we could literally be a part of this whole new green wave. And then I got invited to all these uh, mostly white environmental conferences and I would give this speech about this and man, people would cry and they would cheer and they would give me pets on the head. And, and then when we would go and ask for money for grants, big environmental organizations like the Sierra Club, et cetera, have a hundred million, $200 million budgets. We couldn't raise a dime. I mean, we literally, I mean, if we got a $5,000 grant, we thought it was amazing. It took, it was a long time before we got any significant grant at all. And yet I was going around giving all these speeches and getting all this attention and all this press and no support. And I finally talked to someone who I knew who was a financial advisor to a very wealthy person. That person was giving tens of millions of dollars to other groups. You know, he was offering me like $25,000, which it's happy to take, but not that happy. And, you know, I said, well, you know, why is this? Like, I've been to all these meetings. I've gone to all these things. I've been there. And he, he, said, he literally said, oh, well, you know, Van, you're a very eloquent speaker but we don't necessarily think you're gonna be able to do all the things you're talking about. Now, here's a white person, very nice, very progressive, had me in his home, asked me about my family, invited me to different events, but in the back of his mind, he had zero confidence that I could do literally one one hundredth of the work of any random white person walking in with, it, with an environmental organization. I just think that in his mind, he was like, well, there's some people who can run large organizations and, and there's some people who give good speeches. And just so happened, all the people who come to our conferences who give good speeches are the black and brown people. And all the people who can run organizations are the white people. But I don't think he, even as he was talking to me, he realized what he was saying. And of course, within, you know, 24 months, I was running an $80 billion program for Barack Obama. So, but literally up until a couple of years before going to work in the White House for Obama, that was my experience dealing with even very well-intentioned uh, white environmentalists. Well, and that's nice racism. And you haven't asked me, you know, what is white fragility? But had you said to him, actually, that's racist, mm -hmm. uh, you then would have likely experienced white <laughs> fragility, which is he would have freaked out. Absolutely. And um, melted down in, or, you know, could have come out in a rage of ways with him either just going silent and really never speaking to you again or, you know, defending himself or feeling in outrageously accused of something unfair. And that may be why you didn't say that at the time. And this is this is why Absolutely. I say white fragility functions quite powerfully. It's a form of racial bullying. Most of the time, things as much as white people say, oh, tell us what to do. Tell us what we're doing. I don't want to be racist. Most of the time when you tell us, things get worse for you, not better. Mm -hmm. And so I see it as a very powerful form of uh, white racial control. Well, it's, it's one of the first things you, you learn, or if, you, if you learn anything at all, is to be very careful when you're in the presence of a large number of white people. Because... In black culture, and again, we're just using kind of gross generalizations here, but, you know, in black culture, there's only one rule. Like, you know, you have like 10 commandments. We have one commandment just 10 times. And the one commandment is keep it real. 
So there's a big, big priority on authenticity, on honest expression, on being plain spoken. That gets you in trouble in other cultures where keep it polite is the main mandate. And so, you know, my experience as an African-American is that, you know, keep it real is sometimes keep it real dumb because if you actually say what you think, there's not necessarily a receptivity. You learn how to try to translate and how you have to duck and dodge. And then when you try to have the conversation, to your point, about the fragility that you're trying to manage and the sort of the forms of nice racism, you have to, it's, that's like trying to defuse a bomb. If you're an African-American trying to have that conversation, especially when your job's on the line or you're talking to a professor, I don't think a lot of people understand how difficult it is to try to have an authentic, honest conversation about our experiences yeah. in these spaces. Yeah. The question isn't, is this true or false? Is this right or wrong? I mean, I don't know that we can ever settle questions like that, but what does this serve? Or how does this function? So how does politeness and niceness function in relationship to race? So I want to be really clear that I'm not preaching not to be nice. (laughs) I wish social media was a lot nicer. (laughs) Agree, Um, agree. But I'm talking about niceness as the answer to racism or niceness perceived as an indicator that racism is not present. The things that white culture would say are nice and polite are exactly what would probably be oppressive and stifling to black folks, right? Don't be real. Don't show emotion. Don't challenge us. Keep us comfortable. No conflict here. And that, that is going to be a culture that not only protects racism, but it's a passive-aggressive culture. Do you ever feel like you're settling? For your foundation, that is. Maybelline's new Instant Age Rewind Eraser Foundation doesn't settle into fine lines and wrinkles. With SPF 20 and moisturizing pro-vitamin B5, this foundation not only provides medium coverage and a natural finish, but also protects and nourishes your skin. And the best part? The blurring sponge tip applicator makes application a breeze. Say goodbye to cakey, uneven foundation and hello to a flawless, radiant complexion. Try our new foundation today and see the difference for yourself at amazon.com slash instant eraser foundation. On the Nintendo Switch system, there's so many worlds you can explore. Like Hyrule, where I can fight enemies and save the kingdom with Link. (laughs) That sounds adventurous. Or my very own island in Animal Crossing New Horizons, where I can fish whenever I want. the size of that thing! You can find even more worlds to explore on the Nintendo Switch system. Games rated E to E10+. Games and systems sold separately. I think that I want to shift to the other side of the argument. If you were just from Mars observing, I think you would say, look, 2020, there was this big outpouring of concern from the white community because of George Floyd, the public execution of George Floyd. If you had taken a poll in, say, January 2020, is anti-black racism a real thing? Is it a big problem? Are the police out of control? Whatever number of white people would have said no, about 30 million of them changed their mind. 30 million changed their mind over the course of summer 2020. I mean, Dr. King never had one summer 
where 30 million white people changed their mind. I mean, it was a remarkable moment. If you had gotten hit upside the head that summer and then woke back up now <laughs> out of a coma, you would say, well, what happened to all those people? Because the bigger voices now are these backlash voices saying you can't talk about racism in school to kids. Critical race theory is a terrible conspiracy to make white kids hate themselves in America. And you guys all need to go sit down and shut up. Now, that's a big whiplash for me. And I just want to walk with you through how do you make sense of this? And are there things that we did wrong uh, or things we didn't understand or things we could improve? What the heck is going on? <laughs> well, it, it is a highly adaptive system. You, you mean the system of the of, system of, of racism and, and white supremacy? Carol Anderson so powerfully argues in white rage that every inch of black progress has been met with white rage. And I don't think you could have a, a clearer demonstration of that. It was so effective, right, the summer of 2020, that that is why we got the backlash. Like that, that was, I suppose, very threatening to, you know, the powers that be, the status quo. That's one piece of it. We tend to, we've been, I think, trained to think about racial progress as an arc ever ascending when it's it's not an arc it's a push and a pull and a push and a pull and back and forth and you gain an inch and you lose an inch by thinking of it as an arc it sets us up to be complacent and Mm -hmm. to rest when we think we've accomplished something Mm -hmm. right i think that the summer of 2020 you had a couple things going on but one i mean the power of that video it breaks my heart that it took that i mean the, the difference was it got videotaped it wasn't new, but it's kind of exciting. I mean, I feel I just want to apologize for even on behalf of myself and the white people that to say that that is, is exciting. But there are aspects of that that were invigorating and to go down to a march and to feel, you know, justice and that you're contributing to justice. But then when it comes into the day in and day out, wait, wait a minute. What does this require of me? This requires actually quite a bit from me. And that, okay, now I don't want to do that anymore. It's too hard, right? I mean, look what's going on with all the hand-wringing over, don't make white people feel guilty. As if we we should be able to address racism and always feel just fine. (laughs) There should be no uncomfortable feelings involved in this. So there are many threads. I see many threads that are kind of moving us back the other way. I mean, I I think for me, I'm beginning to suspect that maybe there's 20, 25 percent of white consumers of this education that can take it relatively straight. Maybe they grew up poor. Maybe they're just especially empathetic. Um, Maybe they have black people in their family or like whatever it is, about 25 percent that can just take it straight on the nose. And then I think there's about 75 percent that are in that white fragility group in a major way. <laughs> I, I don't think we got a, a product for them yet. They are people who do need to have it relate to them, at least in the following way. This is good for you. This is good for you. You, you're a 53-year-old white guy. You're heterosexual. If we can create in you a capacity to empathize with the young black lesbian on your job, you're going to be a better spouse. (laughs) You're going to be a better granddad. You're going to get more contracts. You're in the most diverse country in the history of the world. It turns out 
that your ability to partner authentically across these lines of difference is a competitive advantage for you. It's a superpower for you. You're going to be much more awesome than you are right now if you understand this stuff. And I think that to the extent that we're asking people to take on hard lessons and hard learning and to feel uncomfortable so that I can feel better, (laughs) I think it's a tougher sales pitch. Now, for 25%, it's not because for whatever reason, they're there. But I wonder if for that 75%, we need to point out your life kind of sucks too in this situation because you got to walk on eggshells. You don't know what's, what's coming next. You're not really prepared for this new diverse century. This is actually good for you. I don't know if we say that enough. And I also have kind of come to terms with there just isn't any way to get this right by everybody. There's just no way. It is way too layered and way too complicated. And so I strive, let me get it as right as I can, as often as I can, by as many as I can. And my approach will be really effective for some and not for others. Great. Go find a person who has an approach that's effective for you because that wouldn't be effective for me. However you get there, get there. Get there. Right. Where, where it tends to be, you need to deliver it to me, right? I'm not going to seek it out, right? I'm just going to sit back. You bring it to me. You present it to me. And then I will decide, you know, it's just like, come on, let's get some skin <laughs> in the game, white people, and find something that works and then stay with it. But to use that as, well, that's why I'm not going to do it at all, or I'm not, I'm not going to stay involved. Another piece is that it's often, it's seldom sustained, you know, it's a lot like water dripping on a rock. There's no, I didn't get this the first, second, third, fourth, but you know, <laughs> it's so seductive. You know, the comfort of the status quo racially for white people is incredibly seductive. So if it isn't sustained, it's probably not going to take. So that, that's another challenge. And, and I, I'd like, I, I guess I have high expectations for white people. <laughs> um, <laughs> even, even something done poorly, if you care you can find something of value. For me, I, I think this capacity to partner across lines of difference is make or break for planet Earth. I think it's make or break for democracy. My concern is this backlash could lead us into a place where democracy fails. Yeah, um, this is a terrifying moment in our country, and I haven't seen anything like it in my lifetime. Mm-hmm. Um, the explicitness of racism, the, you know, again, it, it's literally illegal to teach that racism exists. Yeah. Uh, it, it has swung pretty far over the fundamental challenge of all that beautiful diversity you just identified is that it's not at the table. And when you have a homogeneous group at the table making the decisions that affect the lives of those who aren't at the table, it's just guaranteed going to be unequal. Even if everyone at the table is well-intended, you simply don't know the needs or reality of other people. And let's be honest, we're not all just well-intentioned. We have been taught not to see value in including other people at the table. We don't see them as fundamentally missing uh, or that that's important. And so that's what we're up against, right? If if I don't think it's important to include you, and and I hear a lot of what we're saying is, how do you get me to see that, right? These are the million dollar questions. (laughs) How how do you respond to, you know, somebody says, well, look, I, you know, 
I, I did work at a place and there was a conversation that said we have to hire a black person. And then we did hire the black person. The black person wasn't that good. Well, the first thing I say uh, is I look at the black people in the audience and said, have you ever just been amazed at the mediocrity white people get away with? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> Um, and then I just look at the white pe- people and say, have you ever had a mediocre co-worker? You know, did you ever think about their race if they were white? Did you ever attribute their mediocrity to their race? Is it inherent to the per- fact that this person is black that, you know, yeah, there's a range of skills. And then we might move into, but let's talk about implicit bias. Mm-hmm. I love this this example of this instrument that women were never seen as as, as proficient at playing. It was a, like a tuba or something, a very heavy instrument. And women never got hired in, in symphonies and orchestras to play this. And it wasn't discrimination. They just have smaller hands. It's a heavy instrument. And then they began to audition behind a screen. And mm-hmm. all these women got hired. Mm-hmm. What's so powerful about that for me is that before that, they literally thought they were hearing something differently than they heard it when they weren't filtering it through the lens of that's a woman. So even your sense of the mediocrity of that coworker, you know, I'm going to take with a grain of salt. Well, uh, in closing, you know, your most recent book is addressed toward white progressives. I wonder what you might say to the white conservatives, to people who just don't buy any of this stuff, who really feel that at the end of the day, there's a group of people, you're one of them, who's trying to whip up as much racial division as possible, have black people feel outraged, have white people feel guilty, because there's a political agenda here for the Democrats. What would you, what would you say to a white conservative who just doesn't, doesn't believe you? Is it possible that there's something going on that you don't see? And what would it mean to you to just consider that possibility? What do you fear you might lose by listening, by reflecting, by considering? And in the end, you may reject it. But to reject it out of hand without that is not particularly informed. And in, you know, 2022, moving forward, we really need to be able to engage in these conversations with some openness and some nuance Um, And we can't get there without some sense of humility that our perspectives are necessarily limited. And I am uh, as clear, I think, as any white person can be that racism is real and exists. And I don't feel guilty. I just don't struggle with guilt. The antidote to guilt is actually understanding that it's not a system you chose. Right. I was born into a society where it was already set up this way and I, I had no choice. But now here I am now and I, I am responsible for the outcome of my conditioning. And guilt it just becomes moot when you understand that. It's actually incredibly exciting, transformative, liberating. It's the deepest intellectual, emotional, psychological journey I ever have been on and ever could imagine. I just want to continue this conversation. I think that something's happening. And when you have backlash this strong and this irrational, I mean, look, let me just say this. I understand part of the backlash because I think the the conservatives are not wrong, that there is an edge to some of our stand that would kind of throw America down the rabbit hole. It's just kind of like, look, America basically is settler colonial, colonial regime, founded on genocide and slavery, and it's basically a racist country and 
we need something completely different. I think that goes too far and does evoke some understandable defense, not defensiveness, but defense that America is not only bad stuff. That defense of America, I understand. I do think that as we evolve this conversation, I do think it helps us to just point out to a lot of people, the best stuff in America has come out of the fight to make America less racist. It's, you know, the, to me, the best stuff in America is the Fannie Lou Hamers and the you know, and the suffragettes and Stonewall, like so much of what progressives do has been trying to make America better and has been working. <laughs> so I think that we should be much more embracing of the exceptional American progress <laughs> that we've been a part of delivering. But I think you're doing a tremendous service to this country. And I think that you are using the fact that you are white, proudly so, not guiltily so, like, you know, proud to say I am a white person and I am willing to take this on and you're creating a real pathway for people. I think people can learn from you and I think we can learn from the backlash against those of us who are anti-racist and eventually get us to a much better place. Oh, that is the deepest honor for you to have said that and I am deeply moved by it. Uh, I have the greatest love and respect for you. And may I just have a few thoughts about the last thing that you said we are not only bad, but we are not only good. And we just want the nuance of the reality of humans, right? That Jefferson was a good person and he also had some problematic <laughs> uh, practices. And for so long, there's been no room to say, we have to look at what isn't going well. And, I, and in my experience, when people don't feel heard, they escalate and escalate and escalate until they feel heard. And so while it might be like, it sounds like all we're saying is how bad we are, I think it's, it's a kind of reaction to, you know, again, not being heard. Uh, of course, we are both. And, and that's, that, that's what we need is that, that nuance, the both end. Mm -hmm, yeah. Mm -hmm. So yeah, thank yeah. you. Well, yeah, th thank you very much. And um, let's talk again real soon. We see the beauty of hope. That spirit is so beautiful. Those who become American citizens love this country even more. And that's why the Statue of Liberty lifts her lamp to welcome them to the Golden Door. The great thing about talking to Robin is whether you're liberal or conservative or whoever you are, she's going to say something that's going to get your attention. And I think that's a part of being able to find our way to some kind of, as we call it, uncommon ground. You do have to sometimes have these conversations that are, are tough. If, if all your conversations are just going down like ice cream, you probably need some roughage in your diet. I do think as we try to wrestle with where we are now, uh, where you have a rising demand for, for racial justice and for a more fair accounting of some of our racial sins of the past and present. Now, meeting this backlash that says, hey, you guys are going too far and you're trying to make white kids feel terrible and you're trying to make people hate America. The way to make sense of these two competing claims about America is to recognize that America has always been two things and not one from the beginning. On the one hand, America 
has a founding reality. And that reality is ugly and unequal, according to Thomas Jefferson. Not according to Van Jones. (laughs) Don't get mad at me. (laughs) If you go to the Jefferson Memorial in Washington, D.C., in marble and stone, they quote Thomas Jefferson about the founding. And he says, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just and that his justice cannot sleep forever. He's talking about the fact that even at the founding of the Republic, you have this reality of a people being subordinated. And Jefferson is afraid that God might wipe America off the earth as a result of that. And if that's all America ever was, then there's no reason to have a feeling of patriotism and love and devotion to this country. But the truth is that if you're standing in that same hallowed memorial to Jefferson and you just turn your head a few degrees, there's something else in the same marble and the same stone. And it is this. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all are created equal. That is the founding dream. That's what makes us Americans, is that every generation has this challenge. How do you close the gap between the ugliness of the founding reality and the beauty of the dream? Over time, we do get better. And over time, we do make progress. I want my conservative friends, though, to calm down because hiding histories and whitewashing histories is only going to make things worse in the long term as a generation of American kids is less able and less capable of dealing with diversity than their parents were. That's not good in an increasingly diverse world. But I I would say to my progressive friends, as loud as we are about America's shortcomings, I do think that there's an opportunity for us to be just as loud about our triumphs. I do see America as an exceptional country. I believe in American exceptionalism because Dr. King made America exceptional. If you say liberty and justice for all, nobody is fighting harder for liberty and justice for all than a lot of my friends on the front lines of criminal justice reform. Uh, So I just don't think that it's wise or necessary for us, even as we push America to be better and wiser and more fear on race and gender and everything else for us to lose the thread of the argument. This is not an anti-American argument. At the end of the day, it's an argument for the best in this country against the worst in this country. And I think that Robin's perspective on our past and our present is key. It's critical. So this week, my challenge to you is this. Don't let this conversation end here. Think about somebody in your life who's maybe not super plugged in to these conversations about systemic racism and the history of racism in America and brainstorm ways you could introduce them to these kind of topics without making them feel guilty or uncomfortable. And then when you're ready, go out and actually engage folks you love in these conversations. The only way we're going to move forward is by talking to each other. So let's start talking. Uncommon Ground with Van Jones is an Amazon original production. It's produced by Magic Labs Media and Wonder Media Network. 
Our producers are Teddy Alexander, Maisha Dyson, Grace Lynch, Adesua Agbanile, Sundus Hassan Noli, and Lindsay Cradlewell. Our managing producers are Lauren D. and Eliza Mills. Our executive producers are Jenny Kaplan and Morgan Jones. Our theme music was composed by The Grand Mess. Publicity for this show is led by Alice Zoe, Andy Lichtenfeld, Didier Morais, Chantel Muentes, and Sam Petherbridge. Special thanks to Jana Carter, Taylor Williamson, Seven McDonald, Drew Schwindeman, Eric Carter, Trevor McNeil, Carrie McCarran, Joe McMillan, Steph Walkneen, Vanessa Rebert, Ty Jacobson, Marshall Louie, and Chris Jackman. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Uncommon Ground with Van Jones ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus and Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. I feel like I was blindsided. Because it's a competition show. From the producers of Jury Duty and The Bachelor. We have scoured the earth for the 14 greatest reality contestants that were available during our production window. Comes a reality competition show about reality competition shows. Nobody has dared to find out who is the actual best at just being on a reality show. I'm your host, comedian Daniel Tosh. It's winner go home. Each episode, our contestants will face new challenges. They will test their strength and lack of life skills for a chance to win $200 million. Thousands, not million. $200,000. Prepare, because it's about to be ugly crying. Lots of fighting. Tasha, I have to defend myself. Celebrating 25 years of reality TV with your favorites. I have diarrhea. You cannot do this to me. What in gay hell have I got myself into? The Goat, premiering on Freebie and Prime Video on May 9th.